Don't touch that dial or mouse pad. Welcome to a new season of Shout for Libraries here on CJSR. We're a program looking to share the conversations and occasionally the controversies happening within library and information studies. This week, in keeping with the season, we're jumping on the eerie true crime bandwagon, years late as behooves our profession. Stay tuned for some recommendations and true accounts of library crimes. July 22nd, 2021, 11.38 a.m. The Bloomington, Minnesota Police Department posts a tweet with a photo of a police officer and a middle-aged white couple posing next to a tall red structure planted on the edge of a well-watered suburban lawn. They're smiling with books in hand. The structure has a glass door revealing shelves inside, also lined with books. At the top is a sign that reads, Little Free Library. The text of the tweet explains, After some thefts from little libraries in our city, officers and staff came together to donate a bunch of books to the libraries. Now people can use and enjoy them again. The tweet sparked outrage online as many asked, How could anyone do such a thing? Literally, how is it possible to steal from a little free library? A word of background, Little free libraries are free book exchange boxes. People can post them on their property and invite neighbors to take or leave books at will. So what does it even mean to accuse someone of stealing from them? The Bloomington PD clarified with a further tweet at 1.12 p.m. An individual was taking every book from the libraries. It is common that they are then sold for a profit, which is not the intent of the libraries. But not everyone was satisfied with that explanation wondering what evidence they had that a single person had taken all the books that they intended to sell them, or asking, why would that be a problem in the first place? As user at Rararic put it, if a bunch of people took all the books, that's great. That's the stated mission of the organization. Why did you have to phrase this as stolen books being replaced? You could have said, we donated books to the wildly successful little free libraries in our community. Ultimately, at 3.47 p.m., the Bloomington PD backed down, saying, Regrettably, in our previous post, we used the word theft to describe books being taken from a free library. We did not investigate this as a theft, nor take a report. We simply responded by donating books that our BPD staff brought from home. A human error. Have a safe weekend. Unsubstantiated allegations of theft are an interesting human error to come from a police department. The next day, the nonprofit behind Little Free Libraries responded as well, saying, Our stance has always been that Little Free Libraries are free book exchanges, where anyone may take books or leave books. The books are freely exchanged. They continued, We encourage stewards to keep an open mind and to remember that the purpose of a little library is to share books, and if people are taking books, that's a good thing. Still, I had questions. How did the police get involved in the first place? It's commonly said that the police exist first and foremost to protect private property. Might the fact that little free libraries are usually placed on private property have something to do with the apparent willingness of library stewards to call the cops on the people using them? And another question, one that led me down a deeper rabbit hole before ending back with the police. 
What kind of organization is Little Free Library? What secrets do they hold to the art of putting books in a box for your neighbors? Now, there are quite a few book exchanges around Edmonton, and if you've seen them, you may have noticed that a lot of them are topped with the same sign. In fact, the very same sign that topped the tall red structure from the Bloomington Police Department photo, the one that says Little Free Library. It turns out that the phrase Little Free Library is a registered trademark of a nonprofit organization of the same name, headquartered in Hudson, Wisconsin. And recently, Little Free Library has received some criticism from within the library community. In particular, Jane Schmidt and Jordan Hale's 2017 investigation in the Journal of Radical Librarianship gave me the clues I needed to crack this case wide open, and I'll be following their lead from here on. Of course, anyone is free to put up a box on their property, fill it with books, and offer them to their neighbors. Anyone who owns property, that is, but we'll get to that in a moment. But if you want to call your book exchange a little free library, now that'll cost you. Registering your box requires purchasing an official charter sign, which range from 40 to 80 US dollars. You can also buy a complete Little Free Library or a kit to build one, which costs from 160 to 390 US dollars. And while you're there, why not pick up some Little Free Library swag, like a t-shirt, a mug, or a face mask? But if you're thinking of going rogue and infringing on the trademark by calling your unregistered box a Little Free Library, don't go there. As founder Ted Ball bluntly stated in a 2015 interview, we own the name. So why would you choose to pay 40 American bucks to register your book exchange? Beyond the privilege of using the name, registered stewards receive a welcome package with information on running a little free library, the option to place themselves on an online map, and access to a private Facebook group of other little free library stewards. Today, there are upwards of 100,000 registered Little Free Libraries worldwide. In addition to these perks, the registration fees support the further expansion of the Little Free Library initiative, which, as organizers say, helps to bring books to the so-called book deserts, disadvantaged areas with low literacy rates. Schmidt and Hale took a closer look at these claims by examining the distribution of Little Free Libraries in Toronto and Calgary. They found that the majority of Little Free Libraries were located not in book deserts, but within easy walking distance of full-fledged public libraries. Moreover, they were more likely to be present in wealthier and more educated neighborhoods. And in Toronto, they found that the whiter the neighborhood, the more Little Free Libraries you're likely to find. So do Little Free Libraries water so-called book deserts? Or do they reinforce existing social inequalities under the veneer of easy activism. The trail of evidence brings us back to a Midwestern police department, this time in Cleveland. I'll close on Schmidt and Hale's account. The Cleveland Police Department is a participant in the Little Free Library Kids, Communities, and Cops program, wherein police install Little Free Libraries in or near their stations as part of community outreach. As is consistent with Little Free Library projects highlighted on their website, there's very little evidence that this program is being assessed meaningfully. We see photos of white police officers reading to black children accompanied by anecdotes such as this one. This was community relations at its best. The book was about one story, but the event was about another story, that of the cops and the kids. According to the website Mapping Police Violence, more than 1,152 people died at the hands of police 
in the United States in 2015. Little Free Library advertises this program as something for kids to do while they accompany their parents to the police station with the goal of building safe places for young people to read. We suggest that public libraries already exist as far safer places to read. For CJSR, I'm Timothy Arthur. So in keeping with our librarian roots here on Shout for Libraries, it's worth considering the lineage of books and media that led to the current popularity that the true crime genre enjoys. I mean, it initially comes off as a bit macabre, no? Particularly the fascination with serial killers and murder. So where does this kind of thing come from? Leaving aside ruminations on the nature of human experience, drawn to the dark side, etc., etc., blah, 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 most analyses draw a line back to court narratives, which we can trace back past salacious and or morally instructional 18th and 19th century pamphlets, all the way to the Song and Ming dynastic periods of China, where case descriptions become popular amongst the mercantile and aristocratic classes, including a recurring detective character archetype in the form of Judge Bao Zheng that is still recognizable today. And in fact, China plays a role in our next piece. As we continue to reckon with our colonial history, one of the key ways that memory institutions like archives, museums, and libraries with special collections may be taking steps to build a relationship with indigenous communities and other colonized communities is to repatriate items in their collections. Some might even say that these items were stolen. In recent decades, all around the world, the repatriation of stolen cultural artifacts from colonial collections has become a key feature of the discussion in memory and knowledge institutions. During the earlier colonial periods, not only were cultural artifacts taken, but oftentimes human remains as well, making the crime extremely ghoulish, even while being whitewashed with a sheen of an ivory tower. You might remember the scene in the Black Panther movie when Michael B. Jordan, a.k.a. Eric Killmonger, is standing in the <clears throat> Museum of Great Britain. Narratively, he and the hapless curator are actually standing in front of one of the Benin bronzes, famously at the center of ongoing repatriation debates after literally thousands were stolen in 1897. He stated his plan to take an artifact to which the curator protests, so he says... How do you think your ancestors got these? Do you think they paid a fair price? Or do you think they took it like they took everything else? Which leads to the question at the heart of this story. Is it theft to steal your property back from a thief? Two years ago, a magazine article based on an earlier New York Times op-ed from 2015 made the rounds on the internet, pointing out a pattern of thefts at European museums. In 2010, almost 250 years after its construction and population, the Chinese pavilion at the Royal Palace of Stockholm was broken into. Cars were simultaneously set on fire to distract the authorities. Several artifacts were taken. The thieves were in and out in six minutes, escaping by scooter, never to be seen again. 
or were they? A month later, using techniques that wouldn't be out of place in a heist film, intruders repelled through a glass ceiling in the Code Museum in Bergen, Norway, and took over 50 objects, bypassing more financially valuable works for items that were Chinese cultural artifacts, almost as if they had an itinerary. The few Chinese artifacts left behind were scooped up in a second theft in 2013. In 2012, both the Oriental Museum at Durham University and the Fitzwilliam Museum at Cambridge University were broken into. Both thefts involved burrowing through a wall, with two items taken in the former burglary and the second resulting in a loss of between 15 and 40 million pounds worth of jade statuary. 2015, the Chinese Museum at Chateau Fontainebleau was burglarized. The Chinese Museum was established by the last Empress of France three years after France joined the British in the Second Opium War and looted the Imperial Summer Palace in Beijing. Incidentally, this is the historical event where the Pekingese dog breed becomes available in the West, as five were taken from the palace. One was given to Queen Victoria, and she named it Ludi. Anyways, around three or four hundred additional stolen objects were given to the Empress, and they formed the core of the collection. Fast forward 150 years, a window is smashed, thieves enter, seven minutes later, they are gone, along with 22 Chinese and Thai cultural artifacts. The article claims that the thefts have continued all over Europe in daring, cinematic fashion, though because officials may be reluctant to publicize their failures, the full scale may never be known. In fact, in 2019, an alleged plot was foiled to break into Fontainebleau again. Four men from Spain and one from China were arrested. Again, the possibility of Chinese state involvement was raised, this time by a local police official. Convicted in both the Durham and Cambridge thefts as well, and they were all white Englishmen. The artifacts from Durham were even recovered because the thieves forgot where they had stashed their haul. On the other hand, apparently at least one artifact that was stolen from the Code Museum later turned up in an exhibition in Shanghai. Norwegian officials did not pursue its return, though the Code Museum's director of security was interviewed as part of the GQ piece. The Chinese government has both refuted these accusations and also pointed out that Nazi thefts were repatriated during the post-World War II period. While it makes for a fun GQ article, the question why must be asked. In eight, over 4,000 artifacts have been returned by the National Cultural Heritage Administration through legal channels, including international cooperation with law enforcement, international civil litigation, diplomatic negotiations, friendly negotiations, or acquisitions and donations. China is a global superpower these days. Do they really need to use these means? Questions about a Chinese academic delegation in 2009, which was accused of creating an itemized list for the thefts. Consider this comparison. Security guards following around IBPOC kids in retail stores. National security agencies keeping tabs on academic delegations forced to travel to foreign countries to study their own culture's artifacts. It's interesting the reception this has taken in different communities, in diasporic publications, as well as the cries of defamation. The idea that the Chinese state is behind this maps onto several stereotypes the West often makes about the country. Setterfuge, organization, acrobatic skill... This idea that is propagated about China, as well as many other foreign countries or even provinces, that they are monolithic. 
For instance, based on the national image of Alberta, would you guess that we are the only province to have signed a Repatriation Act into law? This concept of the monolith, the idea that anything Chinese is associated with the Chinese state, consider that some rogue Chinese billionaire could easily fund these things as well, or even just buy them on the black market after Europeans have already stolen them from their own museums. To be honest, is no worse a use of wealth inequality than flying you and your rich friends into almost orbit. Okay, bear with me a sec. I have this pet theory that a significant amount of Western science fiction is about projection and the fear that someone, aliens, or something, artificial intelligence, will one day do to us what we did to other civilizations. The latest news in the story is that the 2018 article is being adapted into a movie directed by John Chu of Crazy Rich Asians fame. There's a joke by the comedian Frankie Boyle, and your mileage may vary on him, but it goes something like, not only will America go to your country and kill all your people, it'll come back 20 years later and make a movie about how killing your people made their soldiers feel sad. So to paraphrase, not only will the West invade your country and pillage its artifacts, 150 years later, they'll accuse you of reverse stealing and make a movie about it. What's the true crime? That element of mythologizing is a thread running through the modern true crime genre. Generally, the modern expression, or at least its popularization, is considered to start with Truman Capote and his work In Cold Blood. The author, the book, most of all perhaps the mythology that surrounds it, including the perceived homoerotic subtext in the relationship between Capote and one of the subjects, Perry Smith, the involvement of Capote's friend, Harper Lee, in the reporting and writing, they've all left an indelible mark on the genre. There's been several movie adaptations detailing not only the murders, but the writing of the book itself. The next landmark, by my estimation, is Helter Skelter. Again, American mythology plays a role because in this account of the Manson family and the Tate murders, you have a history of what, along with the Hell's Angels at Altamont and the loss of the American War of Aggression in Vietnam, has come to symbolize the loss of America's post-World War II innocence. The author was actually the prosecuting lawyer at the trial of the family, and the novel provides a gripping narrative, touching on the lives of Sharon Tate and her house guests, while detailing the biographies of the cult that would eventually take their lives. So where is the genre now? Find out after the next segment. What do you do when you're one of the few people that has access to a space that houses millions of dollars worth of cultural heritage items and you're under very little supervision? What is to stop you from taking that one little book that no one has asked to see in a while? Who's going to stop you from walking out of the library with that book in your bag? Perhaps these are questions that Greg Priori asked himself as he smuggled his first item out of the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh in 1992. Priori's motives can be chalked up to the low levels of pay received by archivists even at large cultural institutions. 
A 2015 survey by the Library Journal found that Library and Information Studies graduates make about 46K, which in the United States is barely above the low income bracket. It has been well documented that Priori and his spouse, who also worked in a library, struggled to pay rent and send their four children to private school. As he described to police, he was just trying to stay afloat. The motive in this case, however, is not the primary interest. What interests me is the way the theft was dealt with by the law and justice system in the United States. In fact, how most crimes of cultural heritage are handled. For some context, Greg Priori was hired by the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh in 1991, and in 1992, he was given the opportunity to oversee the Oliver Room, where the library housed their rare books and archives. Ironically, the Oliver Room was supposed to be the epitome of secure rooms for rare collections. There was only one entry that could be unlocked by a key held by Priori. Visitors had to leave their items and lockers outside the room. There were limited daytime hours, and the room was under constant video surveillance. Many rare and special collections and libraries do not uphold the same safety standards. In fact, a study done in Australia stated that 90% of the libraries in the survey had experienced disasters in their special collections, which could be damage or theft because most of them had little to no security. So it seems ironic that the room with the most security became the site of one of the largest library heists to date. Between 1992 and 2017, Priori stole countless items from the Oliver Room. There's no way I could list everything that was stolen, so I'll just name a few of the major works. There was Thomas McKinney and James Hall's The History of the Indian Tribes of North America. This landmark work included 120 hand-colored lithographs, which were McKinney's attempt to document in full color the dress and spiritual practices of Native Americans. There was Ptolemy's groundbreaking La Geographia, which was printed in 1548 and had survived intact for over 400 years, but now all of its maps were missing, cut right out of the book. There was also a first edition of Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica, a first edition of a book written by the nation's second president, John Adams, as well as a book signed by the third president, Thomas Jefferson. There was also a first edition of George Eliot's Silas Marner, just to name a few. Because you can't just sell rare books on the internet randomly without expecting someone to question where the books came from, Prairie needed help. He enlisted the services of a man who was well-known and well-respected in the rare book trade. His name is John Shulman, previous owner of Caliban Bookshop, a popular location for perusing rare finds and also the location where they both sold the stolen items. Shulman's good reputation served them both well, and over the course of 25 years, the pair were able to sell are you ready for it? $8 million worth of rare and special collection items. $8 million. That is not a sum to scoff at. The crazy part is also just how long these two got away with it. 25 years. How did they get caught, you may ask? Well, in 2016, the library finally decided it was time to do an audit of the Oliver Room using an inventory list from 1991. And in 2017, that audit took place. It was said that within a few hours, the auditors knew that they had a huge problem on their hands. Very quickly after that audit, locks were changed, people were questioned, books tracked down, although some are still missing to this day. And on June 18th of last year, after years of cultural theft, mutilating countless books and manuscripts, and ruining the library's reputation, Priori was sentenced to three years of house arrest and 12 years probation, aka no jail time.
Shulman, for his crimes of helping Priore sell the stolen items, was sentenced to four years of house arrest and 12 years probation. So at this very moment, both of these men who accomplished an $8 million heist, well, almost accomplished, are sitting in their home somewhere, waiting for those few years to be up. This is not an uncommon type of sentencing for crimes against cultural heritage. For many years, crimes against culturally important items, such as rare books, maps, and documents, have not been taken as seriously, despite librarians and archivists everywhere advocating for the idea that these items are more valuable to society than any other items with comparable market value. It wasn't even until 2002 that cultural value was truly recognized on a federal judicial level. And even now, sentencing is often light, despite the backlash from professionals in the library and information studies field. The repercussions of cultural heritage destruction to humanity and the international community as a whole was recognized as early as 1954 and famously noted during a trial for the destruction of a UNESCO heritage site that the destruction of cultural heritage erases part of the heritage of all humankind. So at what point and to what degree do we reconcile the law to match the sentiment of losing valuable cultural property? Crimes such as the ones committed by Priore and Shulman, crimes against cultural heritage, are often thought as being crimes against property. It is possible that this is the reason that sentencing for these crimes is so light. They are not thought of as crimes against humanity when cultural heritage has been argued to be one of the foundations of humanity itself. So what needs to happen in order for people to take notice and recognize the gravity of cultural heritage crimes? What needs to be stolen next? So many would recognize that the true crime genre is currently experiencing a bit of a renaissance, or at least an explosion in popularity. A lot of this might be laid at the feet of new media, podcasting in particular, like Serial and My Favorite Murder. I also wonder how much has been encouraged by digital streaming services and the rush for content, such as How to Make a Murderer and Tiger King, given that I imagine the development costs are low relative to other options. I mean, it's a tried-and-true formula, as we've established. Penny Dreadfuls? Pulp? Lurid description of crime have always been a bit of an old reliable for entertainment. On the literary side of things, modern examples have begun to add new elements through postmodern approaches, combining true crime with architectural history, in the case of Devil in the White City, and metatextual self-reflection, in the case of I'll Be Gone in the Dark wherein the author, Michelle McNamara, attempts to examine her own motivations and compulsions for following the case of the original Night Stalker. This brings us to the present day and the end of our episode. You can find copies of all the chilling books that I mentioned at your local library. So until next month, check it out. See you in the stacks.
Shout for Libraries is produced by Dan Hackborn, Abby Mutakumar, Paula Kerman, Emni Mograbi, Maya Trotter, Danny Wang, and me, Timothy Arthur. Our theme music is Beanbag Fight by Scanglobe. Thanks for listening.